0: Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Catholic Education classes. Tonight we're on Church History. So let's start with prayer. In name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, open up our hearts, open up our minds, so that we might know the truth and love the truth and live it each day. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As, as it was, was in the beginning, and is now, and, and ever shall, shall be, world without, without end. end amen. amen. In the name of the Holy Father Spirit, and the Son and Holy, Holy Spirit, amen. Tonight we're reading through the book The Real Story of Catholic History. Answering 20 Centuries of Anti-Catholic Myths by Steve Wiedenkopf. And we pick it up tonight on page 87. The myth that we begin with is medieval churches kept Bibles chained up to prevent people from reading Scripture for themselves. It is true, sometimes Bibles were locked in the church, chained to a table. But it's not because they didn't want people to read it, it's because they wanted people to read it. And we'll explain why. In his 1929 book, Survivals and New Arrivals, Hilaire Belloc examined the forces attacking the Catholic Church and its role in society. He put them into two chief categories, survivals, those old forms of attack that continue to be used by the Church's enemies but are, in the main, on their way out, and new arrivals, the newer forms of attack that focus primarily on the church's moral teachings rather than its theological doctrines among the survivals was a holdover from protestantism belloc termed the biblical attack its key element he wrote is bibliolatry elevating the bible to the level of an idol It is bibliolatry that is the root of of the myth that the church locked and chained Bibles in medieval churches to prevent the laity from reading it. The implication of this myth is that if medieval people had been able to read the Bible for themselves, they would have recognized that the Catholic Church's teachings are false and would have sought to free themselves from the yoke of Rome. The notion that the Church restricts access to Scripture to control its interpretation comes from the Saxon monk-turned-revolutionary Martin Luther. Luther published three famous treatises in 1520 in response to the bull of Pope Leo X exergi domini, that condemned many of Luther's teachings. In an appeal to the Christian nobility of the German nation, Luther exhorted Emperor Charles V and the German nobility to reject papal authority and establish a national German church in opposition to Rome. He argued that Rome had built three walls around itself to maintain its hold on Catholics. He identified these walls as the following false teachings. One, that the spiritual power is greater than temporal power. Two, that only the Pope can authentically interpret scripture. And three, that only the Pope can call an ecumenical council. He warned the German nobility that they must be aware, quote, that in this matter we are not dealing with men, but with the princes of hell, unquote. To Luther, the belief that the Pope is the only interpreter of scripture, which is not in fact church teaching, but rather Luther's erroneous understanding of it, was an outrageous fable and is not rooted in the only authoritative source of divine revelation that Luther recognized, Scripture itself. Instead, he put forth the idea that all Christians should be able to interpret Scripture for themselves, a doctrine that would lead to a multitude. Of rival Protestant denominations. Yeah, we got over 30,000 today. It is widely believed that to facilitate the lay reading of Scripture, Luther was first to translate the Bible into German. He was not. The first Bible in the German vernacular was produced in the 8th century at the monastery of Mons. By the 15th century, there were 36,000 German manuscript Bibles in circulation, and a complete printed Bible in the German vernacular appeared in 1529, five years before Luther's translation was published. In short, the church made scripture accessible to laymen long before Luther. And the Reformation did and that's that that is a very common uh, misunderstanding I mean so many times you hear Protestants say that oh yeah Luther was the first one to put it in the vernacular not at all not even close there is in fact a sense in which the Bible is the product of the Catholic Church, as it was the bishops of the Church who decided which books circulating in the 4th century would be considered canonical. Indeed, the Church took great pains throughout its history to guard, defend, and preserve Scripture. The first effort to publish a vernacular version of the Scriptures was commissioned by Pope St. Damasus I, who reigned until 383, who employed his brilliant yet irascible secretary, St. Jerome, who died in 420, to accomplish the task. Jerome learned Greek and Hebrew to properly translate the Word of God into the vernacular Latin. His translation, which became known as the Vulgate, was not well received in North Africa, where a riot erupted over his version of the book of Jonah. Widespread acceptance of the Vulgate in the church took time. Perhaps part of the resistance can be attributed to the long memory of the church. Jerome's new translation came less than a hundred years after Diocletian initiated the great Persecution. One of his edicts mandated the surrender of all copies of the sacred writings, an event so destructive that its memory remained with the church long after the persecution ended. The church maintained a great respect and love for the sacred word, as evidenced by the efforts of monks to preserve it. You know, at that time when Damasus told Jerome to translate it, from greek and hebrew latin had become the popular language of the time latin was the vernacular so the church has always been putting the bible into the language that people can read the sixth century was witness to the activity of a uniquely saintly man who renounced his worldly life to become a hermit his reputation for holiness attracted many followers And soon thereafter, Benedict of Nursia founded a monastery at Monte Cassino. Benedict's vision for his monks was rooted in the idea that monasticism was a school of divine service in which the monk committed himself to a life of obedience focused on a routine of work, prayer, study, and self-denial. Benedict's monks preserved and maintained Western civilization through their painstaking work of copying ancient Greek and Roman manuscripts, as well as devoting time to copying and illustrating scripture. Working in the scriptoriums of Benedictine monasteries in the Middle Ages was not easy. It took nearly a year to copy a Bible manuscript. The process was laborious and wearisome. As one monk recorded, He who does not know how to write imagines it to be no labor. But though three fingers only hold the pen, the whole body goes weary. Any copying work the monk did not finish during the day had to be completed at night, even in the cold winter months. Bibles were not only copied, but richly and beautifully illuminated with elaborate images. Bible illumination began in the 5th century with Irish monks who painstakingly prepared the skins of calves, sheep, or goats into vellum that was used for the manuscripts. The famous Lindisfarne Gospel manuscript copied and illuminated in the 8th century was the work of one scribe who used 130 calf skins and took five years to complete the work. The amount of labor that went into each copy of the bible led to preventing their theft either by locking them in containers or chaining them to desk. In other words, These were security measures, not efforts to keep scripture from the faithful. Indeed, protecting an expensive Bible by securing it allowed greater, not lesser, access to it. Moreover, the Bible was usually placed in a public area of a church so that those who could read could peruse its pages. The first mention of this protective policy occurs in the middle 11th century in the catalog of St. Peter's Monastery in Weissenburg, Alsace, where it was recorded that four psalters were chained in the church. Moreover, the practice was not exclusive to the Catholic Church. Protestants also utilized the well-known security measure as evidenced by the chaining of the Great Bible, also known as the Chained Bible, published by command of King Henry VIII of England in 1539. Yeah, when you've got a Bible that took 150 calves, that's a lot of cattle and five years of labor holy cow you, you've got one really 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 expensive bible even an, an illustrated one is going to take a lot of skins and it's going to take uh, uh, a year to, to copy so let's just say today you've got a, a, a guy working for a year and then he has to have the material to work with uh, It's probably the equivalent of 50000 bucks. If I have a book that's worth $50,000, I don't think there's any Catholic parish around that's going to let it just sit out in the back of church. <laughs> uh, if there's $50,000 in the poor box, I don't think they're going to let it go unlocked. You know... It it just makes sense, you would put a security measure, that something so expensive would not get stolen. The real story. The Protestant principle of Sola Scriptura led to the myth that the Catholic Church kept the Word of God from the faithful to maintain its authority. The chaining of Bibles in medieval churches was seen as evidence of this. It also led to the false claim that Martin Luther's translation of the Bible into German was the first such vernacular edition. In fact, there had been many vernacular editions preceding Luther's, including St. Jerome's Vulgate. It should be understood that it was the Church that, far from suppressing the Bible, determined the canon of its books and then preserved and authoritatively interpreted interpreted the Word of God throughout its history. Catholic monks painstakingly preserved the sacred writings and beautifully illustrated them throughout the medieval period. These expensive manuscripts were chained or locked up in churches not to prevent their use, but to protect against theft, thus allowing greater access to them which was standard practice in both Catholic and Protestant churches until the printing press enabled mass production of Bibles. So the the Bible is the church's book and and the church has uh, created the New Testament, preserved the New Testament, and um, without the church, we wouldn't have the New Testament today. Section three the Crusades. The next several myths are concerning the Crusades. The Crusades were wasteful, pointless, ruined by excessive papal ambition for worldly power and an example of the corrosive fanaticism of the Middle Ages. A quote from Voltaire. The Crusades are one of the most misunderstood historical events in church and European history. Used originally as a historical battering ram by the enemies of the church during the Enlightenment in Europe, the myths of the Crusades became a means to attack the church And neuter its influence in the whole Western world these adversaries of the faith sought to paint the church and the popes as greedy power-hungry war-mongering maniacs you know the enemies of the church are always trying to use something to take away our influence today that something that they're using is the clerical sex abuse uh, in in the media it's constantly uh, the church can't say anything to society on moral issues because well look at you guys your bishops and priests are so morally corrupt themselves that you can't tell us anything, even though the vast majority of bishops and priests are good and holy people. Um, that that is really used. But but I mean, it doesn't matter. It's just like people who use who use the the thinking that well, priests can't tell give me marital advice because they're not married. Yeah. I'm just saying, a priest studies the faith and he has knowledge of what is right, what is wrong. I'm just saying, the guy might be an alcoholic but he still tell you getting drunk's wrong. I'm just saying, it, it, you right. know. You don't have to be a paragon of moral virtue to know what's right and wrong. Yeah. You know. our, our teachings are based on revelation. Our, te- our, our, our teachings are revealed to us by God. And so whether I'm following the teachings or not, I can still know what they are. And a lot of people say they quit going to church because it's filled with a bunch of hypocrites. Which, Well, the church is certainly filled with sinners. Everybody in the church is a sinner. There's yeah, no doubt every, about it. I mean, everybody on the earth has sin. And that's why you should see the church as a hospital for sick people, mm-hmm. not as a hall of fame. Yeah, and, I think a lot of people view it as a hall of fame. And then they're sorely disappointed when they realize (laughs) that there's a bunch of sick people there. (laughs) Unfortunately, today, the myths about the Crusades have found fresh impetus in the modern world with the rise of Islamic terrorism. Critics of the Church argue that modern Islamic hostility toward the West... Is actually due to the crusading movement begun by the church almost a thousand years ago although recent excellent scholarship by crusade historians has resulted in the refutation of such myths they persist because the authentic history remains mostly within the academic world the media continue to deal in sensational but outdated notions If there is one time period Catholics must know the real story about in order to refute the constant misinformation campaign in the modern world, it is that of the Crusades. Turn the recorder off for a second. We continue, our first uh, myth on the Crusades is, we're on page 93, chapter 14, the myth is the church called the Crusades to slaughter Muslims. There are many myths about the Crusades, but one of the most persistent, especially in the media is the idea that the Crusades were offensive wars of conquest and destruction waged against a peaceful, tolerant, and enlightened Muslim civilization, illustrating the hypocrisy of a church founded by the Prince of Peace engaging in holy warfare. This falsehood originated in the writings of Protestant revolutionaries, especially Martin Luther, who viewed the Crusades as the means by which the Antichrist, the Pope, he thought, sought to increase church wealth. Enlightenment thinkers such as Voltaire and Edward Gibbon, viewed the crusades as the wasteful enterprises of a power-hungry church that sapped europe of its vitality and resources in their view crusaders were ignorant and superstitious criminals manipulated by the pope the history of the crusades is complex since they span nearly 600 years evolving over time and taking on many different forms most of them were directed against Muslims in the Holy Land and Egypt but there were also crusades against pagans in the modern-day Baltic states heretics especially in southern France and political enemies of the church mainly Frederick the, second. the Crusades in the Holy Land and North Africa were not offensive wars of conquest and destruction, but rather defensive, just wars designed to retake ancient Christian lands conquered by the Muslims. Their true nature is clearly illustrated by the contemporary words used to describe them participants in these medieval military campaigns were known as cruce signati meaning those signed by the cross and they were said to embark on a journey a past a term to denote a pilgrimage A crusade then was an armed pilgrimage called by the Pope whose voluntary participants undertook their penitential journey for promised spiritual benefits uh, and indulgence. The origin of the crusading movement can be traced to the beginning of Islam in the 7th century, specifically in the teachings of the warrior prophet Muhammad, In order to unite the various nomadic tribes of the Arabian Peninsula, Muhammad preached that all believers in his movement were members of a special community, the Ummah, and that the world was divided into two camps, the House of Islam, those inside the Ummah, and the House of War, those outside. It was the duty of all Muslims, Muhammad taught, to bring those in the house of war into the house of Islam by means of violent struggle or jihad. Thus, Muhammad's teaching presupposed a permanent state of war between Muslims and non-Muslims and led to an imperialistic and expansionist Islamic mindset. During Muhammad's lifetime, Islamic forces raided into Persia and Syria, which they eventually conquered within three years of his death. In 642, Muslim armies captured the ancient Christian territory of Egypt and then swept through all other Christian areas of North Africa by 700. Jerusalem was conquered in 638 in a spasm of violence and destruction in the decade after Muhammad's death the Muslims had conquered nearly half of Christian territory in the Holy Land early in the 8th century Muslim warriors crossed the Strait of Gibraltar into modern-day Spain which they conquered within seven years except for a small Christian enclave in the north From Spain, they launched raids into France. The Franks and their commander, Charles Martel, stopped a large invasion force at the Battle of Poitiers in 732. During the 9th century, Christian towns and cities along the Mediterranean, including Rome, were subject to fierce Muslim raids life in muslim occupied territory was very difficult for both jews and christians unless they converted to islam they were afforded few rights in muslim society and were subjected to various humiliations including an annual tax which amounted to extortion for supposed protection in the early eleventh century the crazed caliph of Egypt, al-Hakim, ordered the destruction of Jerusalem's Church of the Holy Sepulchre, built by Constantine at St. Helena's request in the 4th century, which the Muslims referred to as, quote, the Church of the Dung Heap, unquote. News of the ancient church's destruction reverberated throughout Christendom. Al-Hakim also persecuted Christians and Jews in his territory, requiring them to wear identifying markings on their clothing and instituting forced conversion to Islam. Muslim persecution of indigenous Christians in its conquered territories and of Christian pilgrims in the Holy Land. Increased throughout the 11th century, culminating in the 1065 Good Friday Massacre of 12,000 German pilgrims journeying toward Jerusalem with their bishop Gunther. Condition worsened for Christians in the Holy Land with the arrival of the Seljuk Turks a Muslim people from the Asian steppe in the late 11th century. The Seljuk conquered Syria, Iraq, and Palestine and set their sights on the lush Byzantine province of Anatolia, modern-day Turkey. They defeated a large Byzantine army and captured Emperor Romanus the at the Battle of Masekrete in ten seventy one. The Seljuk victory and their later conquest of additional imperial territory prompted the latter emperor Alexius the First who ruled from 1081 to 1118, to seek help from the Pope in raising troops to defend their fellow Christians. The real story. Blessed Pope Urban II, who ruled from 1088 to 1099, responded to the Byzantine Emperor's call for help when he preached the first crusade at the local council of Claremont in 1095. Urban knew how great a sacrifice it would be for Catholic warriors to leave home, family and friends, and to risk death defending the Byzantines. So he focused the crusade on the liberation of Jerusalem and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre this exalted aim plus the promised spiritual benefit of the indulgence motivated tens of thousands of warriors to take up the cross and travel to the Holy Land the Crusades were not offensive wars intended for the conquest and slaughter of Muslims rather they were defensive just wars aimed at recovering occupied Christian territory And defending indigenous Christians and pilgrims from Muslim attacks yes it was always a very important thing for Christians to make pilgrimages to the Holy Land and you can see on that Good Friday Massacre 12,000 German pilgrims are killed murdered by the Muslims. The fact that you have 12,000 German Catholics making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem shows you what a big deal it was to make pilgrimages in medieval times. It was a very big part of their spirituality. So it is obvious we are simply defending ourselves. Christians are being murdered by the thousand. Uh, Christians living in the Holy Land are subjected to Islam. And uh, either they are forced into conversion or they are sometimes killed or humiliated, uh, forced to to, uh, be subjected to a, a type of slavery to the Muslims. So far from being a, an effort to conquer lands and kill Muslims and, and, and all that, that, that is just terribly untrue. It was an effort to protect Christians from unjust aggression by Muslims. Page 97. Chapter 15, Crusaders were motivated by greed. That's the myth. It was exactly the opposite. It was very expensive for Crusaders, and uh, they were being very generous in going. Perhaps the most persistent myth about the Crusades has been that they were launched to satisfy the greed of Europeans for land and treasure. The myth's origin can be traced to the 11th century at the time of the First Crusade, when Anna Komenina, the teenage daughter of the Byzantine Emperor Alexis I, watched the Crusaders arriving from the west in Constantinople. Decades later in a book she wrote about her father's reign she described erroneously what she took to be the crusaders motivations quote the knights went to get richer while the poor wanted to save their souls Unquote. she also opined that the main objective of the first crusade was to capture Constantinople not to liberate Jerusalem centuries later Protestant and Enlightenment authors echoed Anna's erroneous opinion portraying the Crusaders as having been launched by the church to increase its wealth. The German Lutheran historian Johann Lorenz von Mosheim who died in 1755 wrote that the Crusades quote contributed much to the increase their popes opulence and to extend their authority. Then ambition and avarice seconded and enforced the dictates of fanaticism and superstition. End quote. Dennis Diderot, who died in 1784, wrote that the Crusades furthered quote, the enrichment of the monasteries. Unquote. But the man who did most to foster the quote, greed myth was the Englishman Edward Gibbon, who alleged that the crusades the crusaders went east in pursuit of quote, mines of treasure of gold and diamonds, of palaces of marble and jasper, and of odiferous groves of cinnamon and frankincense. Unquote. Supporting the greed myth is the firstborn sons argument which holds that with the population boom in 11th century europe there was a surplus of second third and fourth born sons who because of primogeniture could not inherit any family land the secondary sons as it said were constantly warring and disrupting the peace, so the church decided to send them east to conquer land and get rich. A seemingly logical explanation to be sure, but completely false. The Crusades were seen as such noble undertakings that, records show, many more firstborn sons went on crusade than secondary sons. So it was, in fact that those who stood to lose the most, who risked their lives in defense of Christendom. The Crusades were not wars of conquest or colonization motivated by greed. Rather, those who participated viewed the events as armed pilgrimages. Indeed, the Crusades were born in an age of pilgrimage when Europeans, motivated by faith, traveled to various shrines and churches. There were countless local cult centers with relics of saints as well as international destinations such as Rome, Jerusalem, Santiago de Compostela in Spain. Pilgrimages were undertaken for several reasons, including devotion to a particular saint, performing penance for past sins, and seeking cures for maladies. The Crusades were viewed as the greatest of pilgrimages in an age of deep faith. Urban II tapped into that faith when he exhorted warriors to go on the Crusade by saying, quote, It ought to be a beautiful ideal for you to die for Christ in that city where Christ died for you. Crusade preachers and chroniclers extolled the Crusader's love of God and highlighted the fact that choosing the Crusade was in itself an act of love and faith. Eudes of Chateau wrote, It is a sign that man loves God when he casts aside the world. It is a sure sign that he burns with love for God and with zeal when for God's sake he leaves his fatherland, possession, houses, sons and wife, to go across the sea in the service of Jesus Christ, Crusaders were also motivated by love of neighbor, not only of the Byzantines who were threatened by the Seljuk Turks, but particularly of indigenous Christians in the Holy Land. The brothers Joffrey and Guy participated in the First Crusade and specifically cited helping their fellow Christians as their motivation for the journey. In the charter documenting their sale of land to the abbey of St. Victor in Marseille to finance their journey, they wrote that they were going to exterminate wickedness and unrestrained rage of the pagans by which innumerable Christians have already been oppressed, made captive, and killed. Although the crusader was motivated by love of God and neighbor, his primary motivator was concern for his own salvation. The warrior class of Christendom believed it was easier for those in religious life to attain salvation than for those living in the world especially warriors, who were subject to many temptations and constantly engaged in warfare. So they looked for opportunities for penance, and when Pope Urban offered the indulgence for using their weapons for Christ, they willingly volunteered. The Real Story Catholic warriors voluntarily left behind friends, family, and fortune and risk death for love of God, love of neighbor, and their own salvation. When Urban preached the First Crusade, he made it clear the indulgence was granted only to those who participated, quote, for devotion alone and not to gain honor or money, unquote. Odo of Burgundy acknowledged this directive when he wrote about his reason for going on crusades. He undertook the journey to Jerusalem as a penance for my sins. Since divine mercy inspired me that owing to the enormity of my sins I should go to the sepulchre of our Savior. Crusading was expensive and usually had to be financed by selling family lands and property. It is estimated it cost a first crusader Four to six times his annual income to take the cross. The vast majority of crusaders who survived their expedition returned home poorer for the journey. The reward for going on crusade was spiritual, not material. So, Uh, It's a terrible myth to say that the Crusades were done for wealth and for land and for money out of greed. It is exactly the opposite. People were motivated by the love of God, the love of neighbor, and it cost them dearly. For many Crusaders, it cost them their life. Others were injured and maimed for life. Uh, All of them. It cost a lot of money to go there. And some of the poor, who couldn't really afford to be crusaders, they actually went on crusade as servants to richer people. And in that way, they undertook to help out. And the first crusade was uh, anybody and everybody. There were about 80,000 people, and it was uh, actually men, women, and children. People from all ranks of society. And it was an amazing thing that they actually won and freed Jerusalem. Some of the people on the First Crusade uh, spoke about miraculous things happening, that their conquest of Jerusalem and defeating the Muslims was truly a a miracle from God so uh, today uh, Muslims in the Middle East they act like American soldiers uh, fighting in Iraq Uh, they call us Crusaders Uh, Americans we don't see ourselves as Crusaders as we fight in Afghanistan and in Iraq and in Middle Eastern conflicts we don't see ourselves as Crusaders at all, but that's how the Muslims see it. So we really have to be aware that the, um, the legend of the Crusades, the misinformation of the Crusades, is uh, very damaging to our world today. And um, these myths were simply lies made up by people who really didn't like the Catholic Church. They hated the Catholic Church, and so they made up lies about it. And uh, even in modern times, you have people who are uh, disliked, and the media makes up lies about them. If you tell the, if you tell the big lie long enough, uh, ignorant people will believe it. But thanks be to God, we have serious historians today who go back and look at original documents, things written at the time, and we can sort these things out and we can see what the truth was. So the Crusades were a very valid effort. Uh, They were a defensive, just war to save innocent lives. Let's finish with prayer in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, thank you so much for giving us the truth about history help us to love our church enough that we will suffer and sacrifice just like the crusaders did to defend your church and defend your people from being murdered and enslaved by the muslims may your church always live in freedom and peace Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.